This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On April 30th, 1985, an oil man from Texas, Richard Bass, reached the peak of Mount Everest. On the same day, this week's guest was sweating it out himself, reaching for his dream. The NFL draft was underway, where a mountain of a man was selected number one overall, Bruce Smith. Now this week's guest had to wait until the next day to realize his dream of being drafted into the league. Little did he know that the date of April 30th, 1985, the day before he got drafted would become even more relevant to him in the future, because this is the day Richard Bass was the first to complete something called the Seven Summits. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. Great Scott. This time as we step up the DeLorean, the date is May 1st. 1985. It's the day after Richard Bass scaled Mount Everest to become the first man in the world to complete something called the Seven Summits Challenge. Now, we're going to get more about what the Seven Summits Challenge is from this week's guest in this episode. And this week's guest and Richard Bass would ultimately have this Seven Summits thing in common, albeit about 36 years apart. But back to the date, May 1st, 1985. This is the tie-in for this week's guest to a football history show. Mark Pattison was drafted number 188 overall in the seventh round of the 1985 NFL draft by the LA Raiders. This is when Mark realized his dreams to play in the NFL. I mean, all in all, he was credited with five seasons playing most of his career with the Saints. Now, many may recall huge moments of Mark's college career at the University of Washington. And then after his NFL career, Mark found his way into an entrepreneurial role, successfully starting multiple multi-million dollar companies, and among other things, an executive at Sports Illustrated. Yeah, I think we've all heard of that place. But still, there was something throughout his life that was always a backdrop. A very large backdrop, that is. They're called mountains. Mountains would just be throughout his life, as someone may call him, Mark will call himself this, a mountaineer. And as with everything in life, he decided he was going to go all in. Thus, the pursuit for seven summits. Again, we're going to learn more about seven summits from Mark in this episode, including some pretty cool stories about his NFL career. But first, now's the perfect time to tell you about one of our network affiliates. When this episode releases, it will be right in the heart of fantasy football draft season. And if you want to dominate your draft, you need to get a good draft kit some good cheat sheets, and a whole bunch of other things that can come with it. That's where the ultimate draft kit from the fantasy footballers comes into play. It's the kit that I personally use for all my drafting. Speaking of that, when this episode comes out, it will be the day after my big home league draft. And you best believe I dominated my draft thanks to the ultimate draft kit. So get your kit right now. Head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash UDK. Pro tip. Get the UDK Plus because you get access to the DFS Pass all year long, which is a great tool for daily fantasy sports for a great price. 
Go ahead. I know you got to do it. Pause this button. Mash that little pause button on your podcast player. Go get the Ultimate Draft Kit right now by heading to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash UDK. Okay, now that you're back and you got all your fantasy football things in order, let's get into the interview with Mark Pattison. I mean, okay, so you have mountaineers, right, that travel and they do all this type of thing, but I didn't realize that there was something that was started by uh, the founder. Was the CEO of Disney or something like that had started this originally, the concept of it? Uh, actually a guy named Dick Bass and Dick Bass is a guy that owns Snowbird. He was an oil man from Texas. I actually got the good fortune of meeting him. And then he brought in his best friend, uh, Frank Wells, who was the CEO of Disney at the time. What was their process? Like, why did they decide that this is what we want to do? I can't remember the origin of all that, but essentially Dick Bass came up with this whole concept and they were, their whole goal was to try to do it in one year. And so I think it was a gap year for, for both of them. And they wanted to figure out a way that they could go and they could challenge themselves through mountaineering and actually climb the highest summit, the highest mountain on each continent. And so there's a certain strategy, of course, you have to go about doing that because based on where you are on the, in, in the world, um, you know, our summer is South America is, for example, winter and vice versa, of course. So. There has to be some 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 strategy around it. Unfortunately, Frank Wells died in a helicopter crash that Dick Bass was uh, on. Um, he wasn't on his aircraft, but they had switched at the last minute, and um, the wives wanted to ride down with their husbands, and so Dick got out, went into the helicopter, and jumped in with his own wife. And then Frank Wells' helicopter crashed, very tragic. And I happened to be at a at a a fundraiser at Snowbird shortly after that. And to listen to Dick Bass recap that story and be in absolute tears uh, was heartbreaking. But that's how it all came about. And and uh, he wrote a book. I read it. I was, like I said, I was, I was fortunate to meet him. And then uh, years later, I would pursue that journey myself. Now, that kind of reminds me tying it into a football theme here. When I did the episode on George Hallis, the founder of the Chicago Bears, there was a boat that he was supposed to get on for like a company retreat or something like that. And it sunk in the harbor of Chicago and the river. And he, for some reason, barely missed the, the the launch. I don't know what the reasoning was there, but then everybody actually, he, his name was in the casualty list of the papers thinking that he had passed away. And then of course he goes on to help found the bears and then, well, the Decatur Staley's, but then help found the NFL and everything. So it's just those little moments in life that it's just amazing that, what they can do, the butterfly effect. And for you yourself, I know I, mean, I looked at a lot of your stuff, you know, like going the, the summits going up and down and such. I mean, what made you want to get into the seven summits challenge? Uh, I think it, in a lot of cases, not all cases, and certainly not the case necessarily of any of the climbers that I went up on, on Mount Everest um, with, because many were from uh, Illinois and Chicago or New York or Connecticut and places like that. But in my case, I grew up in Seattle. Washington. And, and for anybody who's been up there, um, we've got mountains in all directions. Uh, one of the big ones up there is a mountain called Mount Rainier. And a lot of the kind of the famous climbers back in the day, back in the 70s, um, really cut their chops there. Two of the or the more famous ones, they're in their 90s now, but Jim and Lou Whitaker. Jim actually uh, was the first American to ever climb Mount Everest in 1963. And then Lou went on to found a mountaineering expedition, worldwide expedition, adventure climbing um, at Mount Rainier. That's the origin. It's, it's still there. His son runs it, Peter, now. 
But, you know, I, I heard all these tales and that really inspired me. And then um, there's another very famous, I think it's America's most premier mountaineer, a guy named uh, Ed Veesters. And he's done all the, the, the peaks over 24,000 feet with no oxygen, which is an amazing feat. You know, he again is from Seattle. He lives here in Sun Valley. And the wonderful thing about all this is that um, through my mountain climbing and various endeavors, I've gotten to meet all those guys. And uh, they're very cool. I've climbed with some of them. And and it's just it's 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 fun to be able to call them friends, but certainly I'm a product of my environment, and so I was exposed to that, you know, just from the fact that I grew up in the great state of Washington. Yeah, we'll get to that growing up in the great state of Washington, New Seattle, as, as far as football goes. But you said twenty four thousand feet, no oxygen, a great feat. Someone like me and my ignorance, not understanding what that. Because, I mean, I don't have any reference point. Like, at what point is it where, hey, you need oxygen to be not a great feat? Well, I mean, that's a good question, and it varies for every person. So there is no magic answer. You know, um, I live in Sun Valley, Idaho, and I live at 6,000 feet. And there's plenty of people that come to 6,000 feet and get queasy, you know, just because their body is used to sea level. Um, I guided a guy up Mount Rainier. The goal was to go from 5,000 feet to 10,000 feet. There's a camp up there called Camp Mir. And at 8,000 feet, he just became completely unclued. You know, he was throwing up and everything else. It was awful. And I ended up having to carry him down. And, you know, in my case, a real test for me was my my first mountain. Actually, my first mountain um, down in uh, that I did to start the journey. I've actually climbed it twice, Mount Kilimanjaro. It's the highest mountain from floor to ceiling in the world at 19,333 feet, you start in the jungle, your monkeys jumping around and, and the trees and everything, and you make your way up. You know, it's, it's, it really tested whether or not I could do altitude and what happens to, uh, to you when you start to get higher up and the things you can do uh, as well to prevent that hydration, nutrition, sleep, wearing the right gear, uh, all these things matter and they can all count towards it. And then where I took from there kind of to my next, next big jump was four years later up to Kilimanjaro, uh, down in Argentina, a mountain called, uh, Aconcagua. It's 23,000 feet, just under. And it was the first time I'd been that high with no oxygen and, you know, how my body would react. And, uh, anyways, this was all, it would all play out, um, on a much deeper level on the mountain I just climbed a couple months ago, uh, Mount Everest. But it matters and you can be in the most phenomenal shape and your body can have a negative reaction to it. And you can, you can be in not that great a shape and your body can very much excel in those conditions. And so it just really depends on the body chemistry and then all these other little nuggets that you have to do you know, along the way to prevent getting dehydrated and getting high altitude mountain sickness. So dehydration, that's not something that I even thought about would be considered a problem when because of high altitude. Is it just the way that the body processes things or something? Well, the higher you go, you know, you're burning tons of calories because you're going straight up. And, you know, you you at the same time, your appetite decreases. And and so your body's not necessarily requiring it at that moment, but you got to stay in front of it. So It'd be like if I said, go walk across the, the Sahara Desert, you certainly wouldn't do that without any water. And if you can do that and you know, go 40 degrees up and climbing for hours upon hours, you know, hydration is a big key. Not just that, but especially when it gets cold um, and frigid conditions, like many of the mountains around the world, certainly Denali, which I've been on a couple of times, 
um, where now frostbite, you know, starts to kick in as well. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong pretty quickly. And I've had plenty of friends not only die um, on the mountain, but also get frostbite. You really have to you know, be on your game to make sure that doesn't happen to you. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, so someone's sitting here in just my chair looking at a photo of a mountain and you go, oh, yeah, OK, you hop off the plane and you walk up that mountain and you're good to go. And obviously there's a lot more that goes into that and reading through your blog. And I didn't realize it took. Oh, geez, you were there for like, what, at least a month when you were at Mount Everest, the base between base camp and training and everything. I mean, what was that process like? It's actually two months. And oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think one that's one of the big things that people don't understand. And probably if there's the most common question, the com- most common surprise, that would be it. Uh, you, you, you need to spend time for two reasons, that much time for two reasons. Uh, number one is when you, when you leave Kathmandu and you land in Luka, uh, which is kind of the main launching point, you land at the world's most deadly, uh, airport, by the way, um, sits on a cliff and it goes uphill. It's only about 300 yards long. Uh, but, you know, you land at three, uh, 90, 9,300, uh, feet and, and you're hiking up to Everest Base Camp, which is 17,500 feet. And this entire time, this, this two month, and by the way, that journey is about 40 miles. So that takes 12 days just to begin with. And so as you're making your way from 9,000 to 10,000, 11,000, all the way up to 17. And once you get to 17, you're going up to 21, 22, 23,000 feet and coming back down. You're going up again. You do these rotations multiple times. And the reason why you're doing that is because you're, you're building red blood cells in your body. Red blood cells um, are the agents that carry um, oxygen around your body. So the more red blood cells you have, the more oxygen you have. And when you get high, like I just did, um, you know, it, especially beyond the death zone at 26,500, you know, you need, you, you're, 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 the oxygen levels are cut by a third. So you need to compensate it by having more red blood cells floating around your body. So that's number one. Number two is as you're building all these things up, you're waiting for the jet stream to lift. So it's literally blowing 200 miles per hour up there most of the year, except for two weeks. And the two weeks isn't defined as for sure. It's this date and that date. It's in this zone, which is sometime in May, later, latter part of May, the, the jet, uh, jet, uh, stream lifts. And allows, relatively speaking, safe passage, you know, up the mountain. It happens two times during the year, one in the spring and one in the, in the fall. It's very difficult to make, um, you know, just with a lot of things going on this year with COVID and we were hit by two cyclones. Um, I think there was around 400 climbers up there and only 120 made it. As in made it back or just made it up and didn't have to descend back? Uh, no, what I'm saying is they had summited and made it back safely, you know, to base mm-hmm. camp and left. So, you know, that's a, you know, like a 30%, you know, batting average that, that when yeah. you go, like there's so many different factors. So, you know, people, and it, and it really broke down in the three. I mean, we started with 21, um, climbers and only 10 made it and, uh, two people got COVID. So they knocked out. So now you're down to 19 and then, uh, another eight left before we even got to summit day, 26,000 feet, because they their bodies, going back to your original question, couldn't handle it. They had fluid in their lungs. Um, they got really bad bronchial issues that prevented them from going any higher. And so they got knocked out. And then the, the last guy made it 26,000 feet, but 
he kind of came in late, didn't do the training, and unfortunately, you know, he didn't make it. So, anyways, at the end of the day, there's only ten of us who actually got up and got got back down safely. Yeah, I mean that that success rate. I guess if you're in baseball, could get you in the Hall of Fame. But yeah, that that's kind of difficult. That's not a lot. I mean, go. It makes me think about when I seen the Pittsburgh Steelers game and was it Ryan Clark? There was a player who couldn't go to a Denver Broncos game because he had sickle cell trait. Mm. And I think that has something to do with the red blood cell count. So maybe that's the same concept. And then I always hear about these other athletes that'll train up in the Denver altitude, then come down, maybe Olympic athletes, and then they'll have a better chance at on the ground level. Have you ever experienced that when you were up in the mountains and come back down and like you have a better I don't know, like uh, uh, you can breathe better with oxygen and everything? Well, it's really the same concept. And you see this with boxers. Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard used to do those types of things, um, go up to Lake Tahoe and and box at, at higher altitudes. And again, it's just because it it is um, it's less oxygen, just like where I live in Sun Valley right now. And by the way, this is the main reason why I, I moved to Sun Valley um, three and a half years ago was to have the full commitment of training at altitude. I train on the mountain. I live across the street from the mountain. And so it le- allows me to go up. And so when I go down to sea level, you know, I just feel like I've got extra lungs capacity because I've been training. And at the end of the day, you're looking for an edge on your, on your opponent. And in, in my playing days, my opponent would be my opponent on the field. And on the mountain, my opponent is the mountain itself. You know, how can I get better and, 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 and really put myself in a position to be able to sustain long periods of time at high altitude without having my body completely crash? You know, when you're up there, there's mainly two uh, big things that happen. You know, these are the people that don't make it. And one is cerebral, which is your brain edema. And the other one is pulmonary edema. Pulmonary is your lungs. And in both cases, uh, there's fluid that goes to either your brain or your lungs that is very deadly. And if people aren't in the right shape, um, their, their bodies can't handle the altitude, that kind of pressure, that lack of oxygen going into your, into your system. I mean, if you think about if you were to go underwater, we're not fish, right? So you can't breathe underwater. So you're, 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 you don't have any oxygen down there. And in this case, you know, there's a third of the oxygen that's out of the air and it's really hard. You take every step. You know, you're going up 30, 40 degree slopes. Um, they're all ice, very dangerous, and it's really hard to breathe. And so, you know, you just got to put yourself in a position where you train your body and build those red blood cells so that you can sustain and you can go the duration of that, whatever that event is that you're trying to trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, it puts a lot of uh, pressure, whatever you want to call it, on the body. Was that feeling of climbing the mountain was the training camp ever worse than that feeling or was it harder going through that mountain than any point in any training camps that you dealt with? Uh, it's a really good question. And the um, training camps are really hard. They're very physical, but the, in the mountain climbing, it's an endurance game. And in the, and as a receiver in the NFL and in college, you know, it's more of a sprint game. And so it's really trying to measure and those nothing got harder. You know, everything has changed today and they make it so much easier. But back in the day, it was two weeks of two a days and all out, you know, full pads, smacking heads, people getting in fights. And so it was just it was probably as much as the mental of just trying to survive that. Or maybe it's a super hot day. When I played in New Orleans, 
you know, being down there in that humidity, you know, it just took a lot of getting used to, but you get used to it. But there's no consequence in terms of death um, like you have on, on the mountain. The consequence in the NFL is either you get hurt or you get cut or you get traded or something and that ends your career and that's it. And the consequence uh, and, and all the, the, the practices were two hours. You know, it was really draining and, you know, it, 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 you had to really like pace yourself, um, but you weren't going to die in the field. And on this mountain, I had a guy from uh, 2019 that I was my tent mate in Antarctica and he died on um, Mount Rainier and I had to step over him. And, you know, so that's the consequence when you go someplace and you're not prepared, um, which is a big difference, obviously, in sports that typically you're not going to die from the physical exertion that you're doing. Yeah, but again, that that's uh, man, just the mental uh, always gnawing at you and, and things like that. Like I think of, I go to thinking of like an astronaut that goes in space and mm-hmm. every little thing that they do that could just shift the outcome and they're on their own and and it's maybe not physical exertion, but it's that mental exertion and that exhausts you and everything. And we're going to play that first game, the, the DeLorean game. We're going to go back in time with me here, considering a mountain of yourself that you had to deal with. I mean, you went to, I, I watched on your website, the video of some of the highlights and everything. We'll go back to that game, number 16, Washington at number three, Michigan. Hmm. The announcer states to the crowd, this is 103,072, the largest crowd Washington has ever played against, you know, except for a Rose Bowl game. And play action, deep bomb, 39, 79 yards, whatever it was, touchdown, 73-yard bomb. I mean, what, what, what was going on in the huddle at that time frame for you guys? Well, before I answer that question, uh, I, I want to go back and, and set this up just a little bit because I think this is really important in terms of your audience and, and listening because you and I can talk about a lot of highlights and I had a lot of big moments. Um, but I didn't, and, and, and so, but it wasn't always that way. I guess is my, my through line. That's my, the headline I want to, I want to make clear when, I first got to the University of Washington as a freshman and you see things, you know, things are a lot different today because going through little league and everything else, there's select, there's flag football, elite camps, uh, elite 11. There's all these things um, that they do. The kids are way more developed because they've been lifting weights. And back in the day, um, there was none of that. And I just kind of showed up at whatever season was in season, baseball to football, football to basketball, and just kept rotating. I never, worked at the craft other than just being a gym rat, right? And so I wasn't lifting. I wasn't, you know, going to these specialized camps and having coaches and things like that. And so when I got to the University of Washington, I was completely in over my head. I was I was underweight. I couldn't bench my uh, how much I weighed at the time, 181 pounds. And I just couldn't compete at that level. And so it took me three years of really digging in and really understanding what it took to become a champion and the expectations that are now Hall of Fame has passed away by Hall of Fame coach Don James had set forth. And unless, unless you hit those standards, you weren't going to play. And and as a result, we ended up going to multiple Rose Bowls and, and Orange Bowl and other games like that. So fast forward the clock to your question. You know, we're we're in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's a it's a team I'd always dreamed about playing. I'd actually we played them in my freshman year. I didn't play in the game, but my freshman year, we played Michigan, lost to them. Uh, the year before, I'd caught a last minute or last second touchdown to win to, to to beat Michigan. We'd come back by 14 points, and now we're in the big house. 
And, and so we're in the huddle. And the, the, the cool thing about that was my, my high school teammate, uh, Hugh Millen was quarterback. And so when we got out there, the safeties had come up there and won them man-to-man coverage. And so he looked at me and we just had that look because we'd known each other for such a long time that he was coming up and this, this ball was like, this is going to happen. And we had a different play on and he audibled off and, um, you know, here comes the ball. And it was just so surreal. I'll never forget that moment of, of anything of catching, you know, it was like you said, a 73 yard bomb, but I probably caught it 50 yards into it. And then there were the other 20 plus. I ran in and as I'm running, you know, towards the end zone, just the absolute silence that was in the stadium to have all the fans just in disbelief that this actually was going down. Obviously, it was a very excited moment and our, you know, sideline, our bench was going cuckoo, but it was just so amazing to be in that position once again after the year before I'd been in that similar situation in Seattle in Husky Stadium, sold out 65,000 people going crazy. You know, as we came back by two touchdowns, as I said, in the fourth quarter, and I caught the last second touchdown. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> I saw that one, too, and then they went for the two-point and everything. Uh, you, you mentioned you played with your quarterback uh, from high school. How cool was that to be able to play at the next level with one of your buddies from high school? Well, not only that, but Hugh, actually, I mean, there's not probably that many kids that have played in high school together, gone to college together, and then gone into the NFL. He had a longer NFL career than I did. He was a starter for the Patriots for a while, uh, but he had a 10-year career. It was super cool. You know, everybody has a different path. It's not where you start. It's where you end, right? And in his case, uh, he did okay in high school. He was a year behind me. He wasn't recruited by anybody, and so he um, was a walk-on uh, at a junior college, JC, Santa Rosa, down in California and he was there for a couple of years. Meanwhile, I got a scholarship directly to the University of Washington, but I was still struggling and emerging, trying to figure out my way through there. But he called me a couple of years later and he said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave Santa Rosa. What do you think my chances would be at the UW? And so I gave him kind of the landscape of what was going on. And one of the quarterbacks he had to compete with was Chris Chandler, who played, I think, 17 years in the NFL. Uh, great quarterback, took the Atlanta Falcons to the Super Bowl but just wasn't quite ready. And uh, so he came up as a walk-on and competed against all these guys and beat them out. And, you know, he earned that starting role that my, it was my senior year would have been, he redshirted. So it was his, I think, sophomore or junior year. So anyways, net net is, it was thrilling for me to be in the huddle and for us to have that moment together. So growing up in Seattle together, were you, naturally a Steve Largent fan or NFL fan at all, or did that come later with being a football? No, I was a big Steve Largent fan, you know, being a receiver. Um, uh, it might've been my, I don't know, sophomore, junior year. Steve was toying around with the idea of maybe become a coach and come out one spring uh, ball to work with the receiver. So I got to meet him then. I've had him on my podcast. He's a wonderful guy. He had a hall of fame career. And as a, another, um, uh, white receiver uh, at the time in the NFL, you know, where you really had to, in my case, in his case, really had to craft um, uh, our our routes and obviously, you know, be able to catch the football wasn't as as quite as fast as some of the other guys um, uh, on the field. And so, anyways, at the end of the day, he 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 really helped me out. And he was a great role model just to follow on what to do and how to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's someone that. Only through 
watching history and things like that through this podcast. I mean, I didn't live it and see him growing up and everything, but I didn't, and I didn't realize how good of a receiver he was. I had heard the name, you know, like the, the John Madden will maybe mention him when I was watching the game back in the day, but I didn't really realize that record that he had as far as receiving touchdowns and to what extent of a hall of famer style he was. I mean, speaking of another hall of famer, Don James, your, your former quarter or coach, at Washington, I mean, if you could pick one thing that he gave to you and your teammates that helped you, like, I guess, led you to you and me talking today, seven summits, I mean, what would that be? Uh, that's a really easy one for me. It's called the pyramid of success. And so it's essentially a 25 individual and team goal um, pyramid that he provided kind of the, the blueprint to success. And what I do is I took that. So that's Examples of that would be getting bigger, getting faster, getting stronger, doing well in the classroom, knowing your plays, being prepared, getting them the, the emotional, the physical, the spiritual elements all together and working in unison. Um, and that's really been a huge blueprint in terms of um, my my uh, college and NFL success. It's been the exact same formula I've applied towards business. I'm an executive of Sports Illustrated now and the exact same form- formula that I use to climb the seven summits. And you know, the seven summits, each, each one of those things, you know, involve having to navigate around adversity where you really have to traverse that path. And, uh, you know, you think seven mountains, seven years, and it took me almost a decade, you know, to complete that. Um, every year I was committed to going to mountain. Of course, last year in 2020, the whole world shut down because of COVID. And in 2017, I was on Denali and I got turned around because of minus 80 degree weather. And so, you know, having my fingers and my toes and everything else uh, intact was important. But the, the, the point of all that is that, you know, it, it gave me the, the roadmap to where I needed to go. And at the very tippy top of that, of that pyramid is called competitive greatness. And that competitive greatness is all about loving the process, loving what you do. And if you want to be successful and great at anything, you're going to run into adversity. You're going to go through ups and downs. But you need to have a, a, a game plan on where you're going to go and you need to stick to it. And, and then just like those, those moments the year before in Husky Stadium where we're playing Michigan, it's my first opportunity to start in the stadium. And, and you've gone through all the work, you've done the blueprint and now you're just, you're, you're waiting for your turn and now your number gets called and then you have to be at your best when your best is required. And that's what happened to me in those different situations. Yeah, I mean, speaking of, we'll go with the timeline of we've talked about your college career, getting in the NFL and the ups and downs. I mean, getting into Raiders camp and being drafted there. I mean, what describe that experience to me? That was an amazing experience. And here's the reason why. Uh, when I got there in 1985, uh, it was still in an era where two years, two years before they had beat the Washington Redskins in the Super Bowl. So all these famous faces were still, and they were still doing things in a lot of ways, the old school. They hadn't transitioned into kind of that new Bill Walsh game, you know, the short passing game. And, and so Plunkett, Jim Plunkett was the quarterback and, uh, for people who don't know him, he'd gone to Stanford. He won the Heisman Trophy. He was a rookie of the year for the Patriots. He won a Super Bowl. He was an MVP there. So he just kind of had the trifecta of awards that you could ever want. You know, Marcus Allen, another Heisman Trophy winner. He was on the team. Cliff Branch on the, on the defense. You know, Lyle Zato, Howie Long, Matt Millen, uh, Lester Hayes. Um, you know, the list just went on and on and on. I'm actually going to a Raider reunion tomorrow. 
Um, so that's going to be nutty. But, you know, the way they did that and the team camaraderie and going out and we had a lot of rowdy times in bars and, and that type of thing. And it was completely opposite for the way that Coach James had done it. And it just taught me there's not always a right and a wrong way to do things, right? It's just you have to use the creativity but still apply those things that will get you to the to the end goal um, to help you get there. And like Al Davis used to say, just one baby. So it's just it was just all about bottom line. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. How there's there's multiple ways to get to the end, and everyone getting to the the same end journey. Is that your? Is if am I looking at a black jersey up there? Is that a Raiders jersey sitting there behind you on the wall? That'd be my Raiders jersey right there, and uh, and just over my computer screen screen right now. I'm I'm I'm, I'm super blessed because the Raiders, uh, they you know once a Raider always a Raider right there, but. I'm I'm going I'm I'm flying to uh, Las Vegas tomorrow, which is where the new stadium Allegiant um, Stadium is is headquartered. And anybody who's ever gone through the pearly gates of being a Raider, whether it was in Oakland, L.A., and now Vegas, um, has a brick that was made that is in the corridor somewhere in that stadium. And so we're all going to go to that place wherever that is and see our bricks. And that's going to be pretty cool, you know, to go through and see. That is very cool. And I mean, every organization has strengths for different reasons, but there is that allure of, like you said, once a Raider, always a Raider in the bad boy era. I mean, it maybe it's different nowadays than it was back in the what, 70s, 80s and everything. But I've had a couple of guests on here and just some of the stories that I've heard about the Raider nation from back in the day, you know, be, growing up in my main, my main time frame was like the nineties, you know, Barry Sanders, I'm, I'm a Lions fan. And uh, you brought up a name that we don't ever discuss around here that, that Matt, <laughs> Matt Millen, we joke around about him and everything, but no, he's, he seems like a good dude too, but just everything is just funny how, you, you know, you weren't even with the Raiders the majority of your career, right? Weren't you with the saints the most? Well, it was kind of weird because my, my, you know, I had ups and downs and, and I'll tell everybody right now, I made it five years, but I mean, I was cut, I was traded, I was brought back. My first year on the team, um, it was very crowded at wide receiver. They still had their, a lot of their Super Bowl players from the year before. And then they drafted three receivers. One of them was in the first round, another one in the third round, and then I was in the seventh round. And I had a great, um, rookie camp. I scored touchdowns and, and I caught everything that was thrown to me and they were just trying to figure out how I could fit in that puzzle. And so what they ended up doing is, and this is, it's all changed now, but back in the day, um, it was either you're on the team, you're hurt and where you're put on IR or you're cut. So they weren't doing these taxi squads that they do now um, and where people can get called up and put back down and they get paid, you know, half their salary or something. And back in the day, they wanted me on the team. And so they'd come up to me and they had said, the people that were there at the time, they said, hey, listen, you know, this is the last game and we need you to go down. Okay. And so I did that. I didn't want to do that. And I didn't like living my life that way. But it was that, you know, this is my dream of a lifetime. I went to my parents and said, I've been put in this really awkward situation that I got to make a decision. I either do this or I get cut. And I don't want to get cut. And I love what I'm doing. And they said, they said, we will completely support you in everything you do. And you do what you think is best. And so I went down and basically I faked a hamstring injury. I don't think I've ever told anybody that story. 
but that's what happened. And that's how I made the team that year. So I got to practice the entire year. I didn't play, but I got to, you know, come in and participate and do everything, uh, go to the, all the games and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I grew tremendously, you know, in that year. And my second year, I got, I made it to the very end and then I got cut and then I got picked up by the Rams. And then at the end of the season, I got picked up by the Raiders. So um, I played uh, late in the year. And then my, 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 my last couple of years, um, I did get traded to New Orleans and that was kind of heartbreaking at the time because I'd gone through so much with the Raiders, but you know, look, it's all good. And I'm just fortunate that I had my 15 minutes of fame in the NFL playing with those, those couple of teams. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the 15 minutes of fame in the NFL will use in getting to, in that sport, the highest pinnacle and then the seven summits. And what was that transition leaving the NFL? Because I know a lot of players have struggled in the past and continue to. Yeah, you know, uh, it was hard for me. And I think that one of the things that the NFL does a great job today of is they've set up all these programs uh, through the NFL PA called the Trust. And so there's a lot of life after football resources that you can tap into and programs. If you want to become a broadcaster or a coach or be in financial services or those things, um, the NFL really lends their, their, their hand towards setting and creating these different types of programs. So these players have a place to go. Back in my day, you just went off the cliff and it was awful. And I probably spent two years really struggling on what I was going to do. And I knew I wanted to do something great. Uh, I didn't want to go to work for anybody. I just couldn't figure out how to transfer that energy from from the NFL and college football. Because I've been doing that all my life. Right now, I'm 30 years old. Now what? And so ultimately, I figured it out. And I started some companies on my own. And then about, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago, I could see this huge shift in in the marketplace of going from kind of traditional products to, um, you know, online digital and the, the, the long and short of now it has led me into, again, becoming an executive for Sports Illustrated. And, and so that's been a cool ride in terms of kind of learning that side of the business and, you know, the reach that digital, digital can have. But in terms of the mountains, again, you know, I didn't, I had always continued to, to, to train. So I never stopped. What I was doing, I think a lot of players play for so long at such a high level that they kind of get to the end, like, I'm done, man. Carson Palmer lives here in Sun Valley. You know, he won the Heisman Trophy. He's a longtime NFL quarterback. And I don't think he works out much anymore at all, just because he was like, you know what? I've, I've, I, I just, I don't have the desire to go at it like I used to. He had a great long career. And in my case, I just like never stopped. And, and I obviously I didn't go at it like, I was when I was training for NFL, you know, eight hours a day. But, you know, I continue to train twice a day, um, do CrossFit in the morning and then at night. And so when this whole idea about climbing the seven summits, which happened really a decade ago, so I was going through a rough patch and it was kind of that big goal that helped pull me out of, of that hole. I didn't have to, I, I, I had to obviously elevate my training and I moved to some valley. But at the same time, I didn't have to get in radically new shape. I'd already been in more or less the same type of physical shape that I was when I played football. Yeah, I mean that, like you said, it didn't have to radically change your transition. Uh, you're looking at a dude right here. I can't see at all, but I used to be in a little bit better shape too. And then I had a, a surgery, so my kidney got removed and such. Mm -hmm. And be right before then, I was actually in 
one of the better shapes of my life, but then it's amazing how fast you can let something just kind of drift away and everything, which brings us back again to the seven summits. And you mentioned how you've had the ups and downs and let's talk about getting into your podcast, which has been going for quite some time now. I think over 200 episodes, is it now? Yeah, I think I'm at 215 or something. Yeah. So finding your summit, what describe to me what it is and why you started this podcast. Yeah. So I started three years ago and I didn't even know what the, what the word podcast really meant. I didn't understand how it worked or anything. And so some guy, well, it was some guy, his name is Yogi, Yogi uh, Roth. And, and he came to me and he's a, uh, the, one of the broadcasters for the Pac-12 network. And so he said, I want to do your, your story and let's do a podcast. I said, great. And after we did it, I had this little voice inside my head saying, you know, I know a lot of people and I think I could do this. And so um, at the time I, I came up with this name, but I, I didn't quite consider it in where it's actually gone in terms of um, the metaphorical meaning behind it. But the name of the podcast is called Finding Your Summit, all about people overcoming adversity and finding their way. And that really started with me. And I like, I was literally trying to find my own summit by climbing up mountains, you know, and climbing to the summit. And what I've found over time is that of all these people that, that I've interviewed that, you know, have been burned in cars and have no arms or legs or blind and climbing, you know, different mountains. It's just, they're just trying to get back in the game at whatever they view and determine is their summit. It doesn't have to be a mountain physically. And so I've had some amazing conversations and, you know, the key to doing podcasting is this, is the discipline, the same principle, again, pyramid of success. How do you start it? How do you end it? Where are you trying to go? What are you trying to reach? And having consistency and daily discipline towards working towards that goal. And that's what I've done. And, and with the exception of, it was the first time I took, I think, a two-month break during when I was on Everest because I couldn't upload podcast from, from 17,500 feet. So I said, just take a break on it, which I did. Um, but I'm back and going strong again at it and really excited about the future. Okay. Speaking of future, you maybe gave me a good transition there, but we're going to do the the DeLorean. This is actually the one where from Back to the Future 2, where the guy's flying, we don't need roads, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last DeLorean question that we ask you is because you've experienced so many different things throughout your life and, you know, uh, varying lanes of disciplines. Let's go back to you as a high school senior and you could give yourself one piece of advice. Yes, there's a butterfly effect, but you could give yourself one piece of advice. What would it be? The best piece of advice is stepping into the fear. And at all times, action creates reaction. And that has really been the magical key that has propelled me in all these different things I've done. There you go. Step into the fear. Four little words, but they're great words to live by for any area of life. But to get it Back to the Football History Podcast. Let's just bring up some things. Something comes to mind from the <laughs> the very beginning. Ralph Hay and a whole bunch of ragtag dudes in an auto showroom thinking that they're going to grab these guys together, start a new league, a professional football league at the time, college ranks dominate. And then what do we have now? The NFL. <laughs> We're coming up on the 101st birthday of the NFL, less than... But well, by the time this episode releases, I guess it's less than three weeks. It's more than two weeks, a little bit less than three weeks now. Or how about you flash forward 40 years after this to Lamar Hunt 
And then the AFL taking on the big boys, the NFL. That's that's uh, stepping into the fear. Or the players fighting back against the owners for the rights that they felt they deserved. It took a long time, but finally being awarded free agency in the 90s. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But these are just some of them that came to mind for me. Again, those four little words, they all stepped into the fear. And just like Mark talked about, the summits in his podcast, they go up, you go down. You get the peak, you go to the valley. Same thing. And right now is a good time for me to remind you about Mark's website, which is simply MarkPattisonNFL.com. You can also check out his podcast, which is Finding Your Summit Podcast. I mean, you can find this basically on every podcast player. So whatever you listen to right now, mash that little search button, the feature. There's a little link on there even. Finding Your Summit Podcast. Go check it out. But going back to that, stepping into the fear theme. I mean, it, you want to step into fear yourself? Are you a sports history fanatic? You ever think about maybe starting your own sports history theme podcast? I'll tell you what, reach out to us here at the Sports History Network because we have a mission to create the headquarters for sports yesteryear. And we believe the only way we're going to do that is to get passionate people like you involved with uncovering, preserving, and sharing the great sports stories that are out there. And what better way to do that than starting your own podcast? If you're interested, no matter what the technology barriers are, step into the fear. Reach out to us at the contact page on sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contact. But for now, dude. I'm through if you're through. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check got the thousands more of unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts long sleeve shirts phone cases mugs blankets pillows towels and even shower curtains go to sportshistorynetwork.com row number one for access to the full row one catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15 percent discount off all prints on the row one pictorum gallery with coupon code shn15 follow the link on the show notes Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.